Well, hey church, thank you for uh, joining us for our online services. Uh, thank you, Jason Martin, once again for leading us in worship. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements before we open God's Word together. First of all, you are probably already aware that uh, the state of Texas is going to begin um, reopening in the month of May. And the first two weeks of May is going to be somewhat of a test phase. And if that goes well, uh, the second half of May will be reopening even more. Um, however, if that doesn't go well, then we would expect um, the state to begin to tighten up restrictions again. So what we've decided to do is we've put a projected reopening date of May 24th on the calendar. And so you may already be aware of that. And wanted to just let you know that we're looking forward to getting back together, to meeting together in person, to worship Jesus together. And, and we're just hoping that that will happen on May 24th. Um, also, as uh, Nick mentioned earlier, we'll be taking communion together. Uh, and so if you have not yet grabbed your, your elements for communion, if you go ahead and do that. Um, let's pray together and then we'll open God's word together. Father, we are so thankful for uh, this opportunity uh, to be um, together even though we're not together. And what we mean by that is we are united by your spirit. Um, we are drawn together uh, into your word so that God, you could speak to us in, in both an individual way, but also in a corporate way. God, as your church, that we would hear your voice today. So we pray that you would begin to speak to us now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, we are in John chapter 6 now as we move through the gospel of John. And as we get started today, I just want to share a, a story with you of, of a hiking experience I had a few years ago. I was with a couple of buddies hiking in the state of Arkansas, and uh, we were on a, uh, a, an eight-mile hike to the foot of um, a waterfall that's called Hemden Hollow. And Hemden Hollow Waterfall is the largest waterfall between the Appalachians and the Rocky Mountains. It falls, the water falls over 200 feet. And so we were really excited about um, reaching the waterfall on our first day of hiking. And so uh, what happened is that about seven miles into this hike, um, we began to lose sight of the trail. The vegetation began to grow up uh, higher and higher. And the further we went, the less confident we were that we were actually on the trail. And what was critical about this trail is not only was it the path to our destination, but it led to a specific crossing in the river that allowed you to cross on foot. Otherwise, the water was too swift, too deep. And so we needed to hit the, the, the river at a really critical place to not only cross the river, but to ultimately reach our destination. And so the more we lost sight of the trail, the more apprehensive and nervous we became, became about crossing this river. And we'd gotten close enough to see that crossing the river was going to be tough anyway. And so we tried two or three times to, to cross the river, um, only to, to turn around and come back because we were at the wrong place. And I'll never forget when we finally found the path again, and we, we knew we were at the right spot, and we were able to cross the river, and not only that, make our way to the final turn leading to Hemden Hollow, this magnificent waterfall that we just couldn't wait to, to see. Now, imagine if in our excitement, um, seeing the path again and actually seeing a sign pointing the way to Hemden Hollow, if we had, in our excitement, grabbed the sign off the tree, put it in our packs, and turned around and headed home. Now, as ridiculous as, as that might sound, this is actually what's happening in the Gospel of John. As Jesus is traveling, performing his miracles and his signs, the people are stopping short of the destination. In their excitement, um, 
in Jesus' miracles, his healings, what they're doing is they're, they're stopping short of acknowledging Jesus and seeing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. They're seeing him as this miracle worker, they're seeing him as a prophet, but they aren't seeing him as the Messiah. They're stopping short of the destination. So once again in John chapter six, we're gonna see uh, this theme uh, emerge again as we begin in verse one together. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So the first two words of this chapter are the words after this. So after what? Well, we just spent the last three weeks journeying through John chapter five, beginning first with uh, the miraculous healing of the invalid man uh, there at the pool of um, Beth, uh, Bethesda, where he was waiting to get into this pool to be healed, and Jesus approaches the man, uh, asks him if he wants to be healed, and this man, not even knowing who Jesus was, uh, not even acknowledging that Jesus was a miracle worker, um, receives this miracle of being healed. Well, shortly after that, we begin to see the, the, uh, the emergence of the plot to assassinate Jesus, and then Jesus' response to that plot, uh, rather than backing away, was to, to double down on his identity as the Son of God. And the first thing he does is he, he, he proclaims three statements that begin with truly, truly. And through these statements, essentially what he, he did was he, he claimed to be equal with God, the same in, in nature as God the Father, but yet distinct in person, which is where we get our understanding of the Trinity. Uh, after that, we saw last week where uh, Jesus then points to three witnesses that validate his identity as the Son of God, starting with John the Baptist. And he talks about how with John the Baptist, uh, there was this excitement that rose over seeing Jesus as the Messiah, but then that quickly dwindled and went away. And then the second uh, witness um, that Jesus points to from, uh, from last week are the miracles and the signs. And we talked extensively about how these signs were meant to point to Jesus as the Messiah, but as we've already mentioned today, the people fell short of that, reaching that destination. And then the third witness that Jesus points to are the scriptures themselves. And as he says that God the Father has been revealing this um, through the scriptures, through the entire Old Testament, um, this testimony, this, this witness that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And so after this, now, um, Jesus is gonna go away from where he was and he's going to go to the Sea of Galilee. And then he's gonna notice that there's this large crowd following him. And, and the description of the crowd as a, a large crowd is almost an understatement. You'll see in a moment that we're not just talking about 100 people or 500 people or 1,000 people. Uh, but, but the scriptures are gonna say that there were at least 5,000 men in the crowd which we understand that there were many women and many children in the crowd as well. So we're talking about like a mob of like 15 to 20,000 people have now caught wind of Jesus as this miracle worker and have now begun to follow him uh, to the Sea of Galilee. And we see clearly in verse two that the reason they are following him is because they saw the signs. And so now we'll pick this back up in verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, 
Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Now, what's happening is Jesus is setting the scene for this miracle of feeding the multitudes here. And we know that this is taking place during the Passover week. So there is this certain expectation, for the Jews anyway, that there would be this celebratory meal that would take place. Now, there's no specific indication that this is meant, this feeding of the multitude is meant to replace the Passover meal, but we do know that that was somewhat of an an expectation for the Jews that they would share a meal. And so as Jesus um, performs this miracle of feeding the multitude, it's happening during uh, this time of the Passover. We also know that Jesus himself is setting up this miracle. The crowd is not gathering around Jesus, claiming to be hungry, asking to be fed, nor are the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, hey, we're going to have a problem here if we don't come up with some food. But Jesus is the one who initiates this conversation. And here in uh, verses 5 and 6, we see that what Jesus is doing, he's actually testing Philip and he's testing the disciples to see ultimately where their perspective is that he might better expose and reveal where their heart is and what they're expecting to happen and so verse 7 now we'll pick this back up with Philip's response Philip answered him 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So we see here that John, the gospel writer, he's telling the story from a perspective that allows us to see that from from human eyes, this situation seems impossible. I mean, first, Philip is, is saying, listen, if we had 200 denarii, which would be the equivalent of like eight months wages, there's no way we could feed this crowd. Like it wouldn't be enough money. Even if it were enough money, we're so far from a village or a town that we couldn't get there and, and then come back in time with enough food to feed um, these people. And even if we could, there's not gonna be a store or a bakery um, or, or a, a place to go to pick up enough food to feed this crowd. It's impossible from Philip's perspective. And of course, Andrew doesn't offer much help. He's, he says, listen, I found a little bread and some fish here, but, but even that is not going to even come close to touching uh, feeding this large of a crowd. And so we can see that John is allowing us to see it, that from, from a human perspective, from the perspective of these disciples, that this situation looks utterly impossible. Now, verse 10, we're going to now see what Jesus is going to do as he performs this miracle. Starting in verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted and when they had eaten their fill he told the disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost so they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten so what we see here now is that in this miracle first of all we 
we're overwhelmed by the magnitude, right? Second only to the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is the, the largest miracle that Jesus performs in terms of the volume of people impacted. Like we've got 15 to 20,000 people who have been impacted by this miracle and have been eyewitnesses to the miracle. All four gospel writers record the details of this miracle. This miracle couldn't, couldn't be debated. Right? It either happened or it didn't. And so you've got 15 to 20,000 people who experienced it, who were there on the hillside, who gave an account that, yes, this happened. I was there. I, I received. I saw Jesus take a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And by the time he was done, we all ate. And, and the word here that's, that we translate wanted, that they ate all that they wanted, that's the word that describes desire, meaning that all their desires were fulfilled here. So it wasn't like Jesus broke off a little piece and gave to each person. It wasn't like Jesus fed them with enough food to just get them by. All of their desire was gone. He satisfied them with this miracle. So this is a, this is a huge miracle. But not only is it a large miracle, but it's a very precise miracle. When we read about this miracle from the account of Mark, we see that Jesus even went to the detail of organizing people into groups of 50 and 100. And Mark describes this scene this way. He says that the hillside was covered with green grass. And so just, there's just so, so much grace and goodness of God just dripping from this story as Jesus sets the scene to, to provide this massive meal for a group of people who don't even acknowledge him as the Messiah, the Son of God. They haven't asked him uh, to perform this miracle. They haven't asked him for food, and yet... In his grace, he initiates this beautiful display of power and goodness for the people. But we also see the precision um, as the remnants are picked up. Did you notice how many baskets were filled up at the end? As Jesus told his disciples, hey, we're not going to waste um, one fragment of, of this food. Go collect what is left. And the disciples come back to Jesus with how many baskets full? Twelve. So in that, we see that even Jesus even is providing for his 12 disciples who hadn't eaten yet. And among those 12 is one who will betray Jesus, Judas. And so here, Jesus is simply just pouring out his goodness and his grace to the 12, even to Judas, and to the, this crowd that we will see just a few paragraphs later are gonna completely walk away from him. Now we're gonna pick this up in verse 14 and 15 and we're gonna look at the people's response, the response of the crowd to this miracle. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now here we see the same issue that was there before the miracle performed is still there. The people are drawn to Jesus, not because they see him as the Messiah, but they're drawn to him, why? Because of the signs. They see the sign, they're excited about the signs, and they've even taken it a step further. Now they begin to acknowledge him as the prophet, and this reference more than likely is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said, listen, God will raise up a prophet after me who will come and lead his people. And so as they acknowledge Jesus as the prophet, they're even acknowledging that this was, this was one who was promised all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. 
But the reaction is what? To see the situation through their eyes, to see the situation through what they can do. And so their response to this miracle is to come and to take Jesus and to make him king by force. And so what was Jesus' reaction? It's not how it's going to happen. And so he withdrew from the crowd back to the mountain by himself. And so this leaves me with some really significant questions. How could 15 to 20,000 people experience such a great miracle and then still miss it? Like miss this reality, this truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And here's what I think the simple answer is. Because they got mesmerized by the sign that they lost sight of what the sign was pointing to. They made it to, to the sign pointing to the waterfall and in their excitement, they, they embraced the sign but completely forgot the destination. And so now here, Jesus is withdrawing and we'll see by the, by the end of this chapter, the crowd has completely abandoned Jesus. When I read this story, I think about the crowds here gathering and, it, and it, honestly, it reminds me a, a lot of modern day Christianity how we're drawn, even at times in large crowds, maybe even thousands, to a building. And we're excited about what this Jesus can do for us. He's a, he's a prophet, he's a miracle worker, and yet we still completely miss this one truth, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. So it's like coming to church over and over and over again, but not, not being a Christian. And so I want to, I want to, talk to you for just a moment if you're joining us right now and you aren't a follower of Jesus you're not a Christian first of all I want you to know I'm really thankful and excited that you've not only joined us this morning but you've held on this long but but I want to also let you know that if if you if you found your way to this service either somebody invited you or you just found us on the internet that's not the same thing as finding Jesus like I want you to know that even after um, the quarantine is over and we're meeting together back in our buildings together, if you are to find your way to our buildings and even having a relationship with the people here at Solid Rock, that's not the same thing as having a life-transforming relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. You know, as a church, what our role is, is to be the sign. We are to be the, the sign on the wall pointing towards the final destination, and that is Jesus. And what's sad is so often, I think this even happens in our church, we gather together and, and we make it almost to the point of acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, but we stop short. Much like the crowd gathered on the hillside, we were excited, maybe even enthralled with what Jesus can do for us, what Jesus can do in my life, what Jesus can do in my marriage, what Jesus can do in my cancer. But we stopped short of that final destination of a personal relationship with the Son of God. So what does it mean to be the church? How is the church distinct and different from this crowd on the hillside on the Sea of Galilee? Well, what's different is this. The church is, first of all, a gathering of believers who've gathered together with the primary purpose of worshiping Jesus. We, in, 
We enjoy seeing one another. We cannot wait to get back together, to see one another, to greet one another, to, to sing with one another, to pray with one another. But our primary reason for getting back together is not one another. It's the coming together of God's people to worship and to exalt Christ. Not only that, it's more than just a, a fellowship. Like the church is the gathering of God's people um, in, 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 into this place where our lives are knit together, life on life, growing together in Christ out of our eternal satisfaction in Jesus. Now that's, that's so important. Because think about this hillside and these 5,000 people who are satisfied. Within just a few hours, right, that satisfaction is going to go away and they're going to be hungry again. But when we gather together as God's people, what we're saying is I am eternally satisfied in Jesus. And listen, that transforms relationships. Because I'm, I'm no longer looking for approval in you and, and you're no longer looking for that in me. And we're no longer looking for our, our temporary satisfaction in what we can do for one another. But we, we enter into a relationship with one another, into biblical community with one another, having our eternal longings already satisfied in Christ. That frees us then to be in relationship with one another. And not only that, a church is the gathering of God's people who have, who have surrendered their lives for the mission of Jesus to follow him wherever he may lead against the current of what's comfortable, against the current of what's reasonable, against the current of what's safe. And as I mentioned earlier, within just a few paragraphs, this crowd of people, they're gonna abandon Jesus. The things he is gonna say are gonna, are gonna be way too uncomfortable for them. And so they're gonna walk away and as I walk through those distinctions of the church, it may sound a lot like our vision statement. We, make, we are a church that makes disciples for Jesus through gathering in worship and growing together in community and living the mission in our everyday lives. Like, those statements matter. Those statements reflect how God has designed the church to operate, to be more than just a crowd gathering together in excitement for what Jesus can do for us, but a, a crowd gathered together joining our hearts in submission, acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. As we wrap up today, I want to leave you with uh, some questions for reflection or maybe even discussion as you meet there in your home with your family or with friends or with neighbors. The first question is this. What is the difference between being part of the crowd that follows Jesus for what he has to offer versus being one of his true followers? I want you to think about that. What, what, what's different about the true church versus this gathering of 15 to 20,000 people on the hillside? The second question is this. As you think about us as a church being able to gather again in the near future, what are you most excited about? I mean, sure, we're, we're excited about the progress being made on the new building. We're excited about getting to see each other and to, to hug each other and like we mentioned, to sing together, to pray together, just being together. But what are you most excited about? What will be different about gathering together as the whole church that's different from what you're doing right now? And then this third question. During this time, when we're not able to meet together as the church, what are some things that you can do to be the church in your own home and neighborhood? So I, I mentioned earlier that the church is the gathering of those who gather together to worship Jesus. It is, 
It is the, the, the gathering of God's people in, a, in, a, in community relationships in such a way that our eternal satisfaction with Jesus impacts our relationships with one another. And, and not only that, but that we have surrendered our lives to live this mission for Jesus. And so, I mean, how can you do those three things even in your own home? As you gather together, maybe you're by yourself and maybe for you, you would be watching this service or future services um, while connecting with somebody through, through video. Uh, maybe you're there with your family and that you would just take this opportunity to remind your immediate family or those there with you that you're part of a larger family that, that has gathered together for, to fulfill this eternal purpose of worshiping Jesus. And as you think about um, being a community, being the community of Christ in your own home, maybe you would take time to consider as, as, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as, as, as a mother, as a brother or a sister or, or a friend, how your eternal satisfaction in Jesus frees you uh, to walk in true biblical community with those people that you're with. And then living the mission, this idea that as a Christ follower, you've been called to live the mission. Even if you're not able to, to come to this building or uh, to travel um, around the city, you can live that mission first in your own home, uh, but secondly, maybe even in your own neighborhood. And you would use this opportunity to begin building real relationships with people that you otherwise um, haven't taken time to do with this express purpose of just introducing them to this goodness and this grace of Jesus that you know. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, this account from the Gospel of John of this amazing miracle that impacted so many people um, at one time. And yet we see that even though there may have been fifteen to 20,000 people impacted by this miracle, um, that at the end of the day, they walk away from Jesus because, uh, Father, they were ultimately just drawn to him for what he could do for them rather than who he was. And so God, may we be the true church, a people who gather together, not just for what you can do for us, God, but because we have believed in who you are and that our ultimate purpose for being your people would be to exalt Christ, to see him as the son of God, to worship, worship him as your people. Father, I pray now that your spirit would move, God, in homes all across the city. God, whether we're in groups of, whether we're by ourselves or in groups of four or groups of eight, whatever it is that right now in our homes, your Holy Spirit will begin to move as we reflect on your word and we begin to discuss what it means in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.